Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, because we were indoctrinated and brainwashed into wanting a map. Why did that happen? It happened because map makers need customers. And so from the time that we're in first grade, it becomes very clear that the way to move forward is to comply. And the way to comply is to do what the teacher says so you do well on the test. And parents have been brainwashed into thinking that they are defective if they have kids who aren't part of the same system. And there are certain places where this attachment to results is really important. So if you're a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, and you're building a bridge, the only (laughs) thing I care about is does the bridge fall down? Yeah. Right? But most of us don't do that work. And getting attached to an outcome that is out of our control actually undermines our work. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Seth, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative for probably what is the third time. Such a treat. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out, The Practice, which um, I absolutely love and resonated with so much. And I felt was so relevant to my audience and had a lot of overlap with kind of the way that I've worked. Uh, But before we actually get into the book, I want to start by asking you a question that I know the answer partially to because you shared some of it with me the first time we spoke. Um, And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices you've made throughout your life and career? Well, I think of my parents... Every day I miss them both. Um, I think we have to be careful before I honor them by talking about them to realize it's a trap to imagine that uh, childhood is destiny. And, you know, I won the birthday lottery. I am a child of privilege, super lucky in so many ways. But plenty of other people who have done art, who have made a contribution, who have shown up and led, didn't have what I had. And there are other people who had more than I had who haven't done anything. So, you know, um, I was raised to expect that it was normal to dive deep into the community. Uh, My dad was the volunteer head of the United Way in Buffalo. My mom was the first woman on the board of the art museum. Buffalo is a small town, and they were both pillars in that community. We regularly had 20 or 30 people over for dinner in our little kitchen, uh, people I'd never met and would never meet again because connection was really important. And it was just understood that if you could contribute and lead, you should. Um, And, um, you know, my dad's day job was uh, working for a company that made very complicated engineering devices. And then the CEO of the company hurt his back in a skiing accident and they started a line of skis and ski bindings. And at the age of 14 and a half, I became their head of marketing, basically writing ads and making decisions and stuff, which was surreal and quite fun. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's funny because, you know, we live in a world now where those kinds of opportunities are available to so many people and so many kids. It's so different. You know, when you talked about privilege, I couldn't help but think of the interview that uh, David Letterman did on a show with Barack Obama, where they talked about luck and um, they both looked at each other and, and they said, look, there are plenty of people who've worked as hard um, and, you know, not accomplished as much. And David Letterman looked at him and said, I have been nothing but lucky. And that, that always stayed with me because I, I think that we're not quick to acknowledge privilege. Like I, I look at even the life I lead, right? I'm the son of a college professor. That is a very privileged life, whether I recognize it or not. My parents weren't rich, but I grew up upper middle class, fairly educated. And it, there's no question as to whether I was going to go to college or any of those things. And I don't think that we acknowledge that. And I think that when... That, that's one thing I've noticed more and more over the last couple of years as I've you know, consumed content. Even when I look at the people that are in our peer groups, I think that that's one of those things that is often overlooked. I think we have to figure out what story are we going to tell ourselves? You know, so yeah. Letterman's story of luck is fuel for him to not waste the shot. Uh, I was doing some work with Acumen in rural Kenya, and uh, the typical smallholder farmer there has half an acre. And um, I got to be friends with this woman named Lucy. And Lucy um, has a taxi company, a tree farm, and a productive uh, field that earns her $3,000 a year, which is enough money to put all her kids to private school. And her next door neighbor with the same land 
has none of those things. Because compared to you and I, Lucy has no privilege whatsoever. Uh-huh. But the story she tells herself, the story she told me is, if I can find an opportunity and explore it at low risk, I'm going to do it because I'll find something that will help for me and my kids. And she showed me that under her bed, she keeps a cigar box with 1 million Kenyan shillings in it. She's a millionaire. And when did she become a millionaire? I think she became a millionaire the day she decided to try a different kind of seed because everyone else around her was like, we have to use the seed we've always used. And she was like, it's only going to cost me $4 to find out. I'm going to give it a try. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, what's interesting is I asked people on Facebook, uh, you know, I said, Hey, I'm interviewing Seth. What questions do you have for him? And when I looked at the questions, what struck me most was how often people wanted a very specific answer, a very specific tactic. And mm-hmm. I know your books, having read them, you never give us a map. You always give us a compass, which is my favorite thing about your books, because you force us to go figure out things for yourself. And I think that ties perfectly into something that you say early in the book. You say the industrial system that brainwashes demands that we focus on outcomes to prove that we followed the recipe. And yet knowing this, knowing that, you know, in any recipe, any formula, there's one variable that will throw it off and that's you. And yet people still want to know, like the kinds of questions I got were like, you know, you know, what does Seth think about TikTok for marketing? I was like, that's a terrible question for Seth in my mind. No offense to the person who asked it, because I can tell you he's going to think that question is nonsense. But what I want to know more importantly is why people still want the map, even though they know that they're the variable that throws it off. Well, because we were indoctrinated and brainwashed into wanting a map. Why did that happen? It happened because map makers need customers. And so from the time that we're in first grade, it becomes very clear that the way to move forward is to comply. And the way to comply is to do what the teacher says so you do well on the test. And parents have been brainwashed into thinking that they are defective if they have kids who aren't part of the same system. And There are certain places where this attachment to results is really important. So if you're a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, and you're building a bridge, the only (laughs) thing I care about is, does the bridge fall down? Yeah. Right? But most of us don't do that work. And getting attached to an outcome that is out of our control actually undermines our work. And so when, when social media came along, basically what it did was it said to... 250 million people. Guess what? You're a celebrity. You're a media company. Here's a microphone. Uh, And in the face of that glaring spotlight, people said, I'm freaking out. Please tell me how to do well on this test. And so we ended up with this cycle of me too and ditto and following and following and doing what everyone before you did, even though the successes are the ones that no one expected, right? That That when Amanda Palmer showed up on Kickstarter and earned more than a million dollars in 30 days, she did it by breaking all the rules, not by following all of them. Well, you know, it's funny because I I think about that often. I mean, that was largely the message of my first book was, you know, don't follow what everybody says you should do for very much that reason, because there's no way you at best will become a pale imitation of what other people do, yet they they depend on that. The thing that what I love about outcomes, particularly when it comes to you, I know that one of the things that you say over and over when it comes to the projects that you work on before you even start is this might not work. And you seem to have developed this very remarkable capacity to manage your emotions and not let um, loss aversion, uh, you know, or sunk costs make you pull out of a project. And it's taken me a long time to get to that. So we pulled the plug on an event and, you know, we were trying to plan a conference and I could see the writing on the wall. I was like, People aren't buying tickets. And thank God that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because uh, given the situation that we're in, um, how does somebody develop that? Because I think that even in my own book launches, you know, I, I wrote a book called An Audience of One, which has a lot of overlap with the idea of the process. And yet over and over in interviews, like I found myself saying, yeah, I'm sure the message is lovely, but, you know, Penguin would probably be much happier if this was reaching an audience of millions. And I'm like, I wrote the book. And I, my sister called me and she said, you want, you don't even believe what you wrote. Yeah. I mean, we're all frauds, but the, um, my business, if it's a business, would be 20 times bigger if I did what the audience wants me to do. Yeah. If 
you know, I don't run the Alt MBA anymore, but the Alt MBA, which I founded, uh, if we just gave people things they could take notes on and techniques and paraded gurus around, if we had all sorts of masterclasses and entertaining, I mean, all of the things the audience wants dramatically boost how you succeed, how many books you sell. So it's not a surprise to me that many of my peers give the audience what the audience thinks it wants. Uh And, you know, I am fortunate in that I failed enough times early in my career that I have the luxury of not needing a home run right now. And I don't want to have a short-term home run. I've written 7,500 blog posts and not one of them has won the internet. Not one has been the most popular of the day. Uh That's on purpose because I'm looking for a practice and a journey, not a quick hit. So to answer your question, the subtitle of my book is Ship Creative Work. And the least sexy of the three words is work. (laughs) But what does it mean to do our jobs? Because you and I don't dig ditches for a living and we don't have to, you know, sanitize a public bathroom for a living. We are super fortunate in that we get to do something that many people would do as a hobby. And the difference between the way you and I do it and someone who's doing it as a hobby does it is we have to show up even when we don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. And we have to show up in a way that is consistent, not authentic. And for me, a big part of being in the media for 35 years and of exploring around the edges is the discipline of not freaking out when it's not working, the discipline of ignoring sunk costs. Inside, I'm a wreck, but this <laughs> is this is the work. And you can either sign up for the work or not. Yeah. Well, so I, I want to come back to the authenticity piece because that really struck me when I when I was reading the book. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, you said if we believe that it's not our turn, that we're not talented enough, we'll do whatever we can to make this story come true. We'll sit back and wait to be chosen instead. Now, I had a really interesting experience in that I ended up self-publishing a book that got me picked by Penguin. And I got to write two books. And for the last two years, I've sent proposal after proposal for the book I want to write to Lisa, only to have her tell me, no, this is not ready. I can't sell it. And I, that was such an odd paradox to me because the very thing that got me the opportunity was that I wasn't waiting to be picked. And yet here I am again. And I finally decided, I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I waiting for them to say yes when the very thing that opened that door was the fact that I d- decided that I wasn't going to wait anymore? And I, I thought to myself, like, this is so strange that I understood it. I got picked and yet I'm back waiting to be picked again. So why in the world would something like that happen? Well, there are two parts to what just happened. Uh, The first part is you not getting picked when you obviously have something to say. And the second part is you listening to that and not picking yourself. So, you know, after I I was a TED speaker and a best-selling author, I went through a period where I was very frustrated because they keep telling you, wait till you get to the other side. And then when you get to the other side, all these things open up for you. But in fact, the things I wanted to do the most didn't. And it doesn't matter that you got picked randomly, accidentally, intentionally once. It's no promise that now the world sees the world, sees things the way you see things. And so part of what it means to be a consistent and persistent creator is to not play covers, to not be uh, a parody or a sequel to yourself, but to reinvent. And so if we look at the career of, you know, Herman's Hermits or um, Paul Revere and the Raiders and and compare them with Neil Young, well, it's because Neil Young has regularly and repeatedly chosen to do something that seemed non-commercial, chosen to do something that made it hard to pick him. And he did it anyway, right? That Joni Mitchell, uh, who just came out with uh, an archive collection, intentionally destroyed her standing with most of her fan base so she could get back to making the music she wanted to make instead of being a parody or a cover of Joni Mitchell. And the world is telling you something really clearly, which is don't keep sending proposals. You've got your fans. You've got the thing you want to say. Ship the work. 
<laughs> well, no, that, that's what I, I realized. I, I, I came to this realization the other day. I was like, I've been writing this book and I was talking to my roommates. I said, you know what? I'm done. I am done waiting for Penguin to say yes, because that's what happens when you read too many Robert Greene books. <laughs> you become the person who starts to think in power dynamics. I'm like, wait a minute. What am I going to get from you? I'm going to get a temporary windfall and you're going to make me design the cover your way. You're going to make me write the book you want me to write. I was like, I don't need to do that anymore. Correct. Yeah. And as soon as you start acting that way, the chances of you getting picked go way up. Yeah. Well, let's talk specifically about education. You brought up the Alt-MBA. I think the other thing I admire about the way that you approach your work is you are willing to look at large systemic structures and basically break them or challenge them. I mean, the MBA has always been sort of the default. I know because my cousin Rama, who actually you met in person, because uh, I remember she sent me a picture, said she went through the Alt-MBA. She got promoted to her job. She's at her job. And now she's literally like one step away from being CEO of a company. I, I told her, I was like, you want to be CEO of a company, go start your own. I know you want to, and you're smart enough. But um, what's interesting to me, and the reason I brought this up is this was something that um, one of the questions that I actually thought was worth asking was a woman in my audience asked about education, particularly in the wake of what is happening now. You know, high school seniors didn't get to experience graduations, prom, sort of the rites of passage that any American kid goes through in high school. Not that I went to the prom, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so, one, you know, how are we going to change this? Because, you know, I asked you this last time when you had just really stopped stealing dreams. But now you have this backdrop of COVID, um, you know, uh, uh, just structural challenges all across society from, you know, climate to, to race relations to everything we can possibly imagine. So when you think about education now, uh, what do you think the future of it is going to look like? The, um, the terminology means a lot here. So let's do that first. Yeah. Uh, Education and learning aren't the same. They pretended they were for a very long time, and they're not. And there are a lot of people who are suffering right now from many of the things you just described. And then it got worse because the kids are home and they're not learning anything. It got worse because there's so much uncertainty about lost years of development and learning. And it got worse because we don't have a plan for how to use this magic tool that we've all built over the last 20 years to create more learning. And once kids started staying home, it ripped the curtain down from the Wizard of Oz and made it clear to parents there was no learning happening at school. There was just education. And education is preparing for a test, doing what you're told, learning to comply. That school was invented, as you and I have previously discussed, to train factory workers to get ready to go do a job. And there are no good jobs like that anymore. What we need are people, is it your cousin? We need, yeah. we need people like your cousin who are going to figure out what the question is. Never mind, look up the answer. And that takes learning. You learn to ride a bike. You learn to walk. You learn to juggle. You learn to do everything in your life that's important. Education is reserved for this very thin slice of certification and credentialing. And I'm just like, we have this best, this moment here where we can take a deep breath and say, you know what? Access to information is now free anywhere in the world. If you have a phone, you have access. What are we going to do with it? And what we should not do with it is build a new regime of compliance. And what we should do instead is self-directed, student-based learning. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, speaking of compliance, so I, I think that was literally probably my favorite line in the book was when you said the system established credentials to maintain the consistency of our industrial output. But over time, they've expanded to create a roadblock, a way to slow down those who would seek to make change. And of course, you know, you wrote specifically, I don't want a doctor, my sister being a doctor uh, who is not credentialed. Funny enough, by the way, you know, you might not know this, but the first two years of med school are freely available on iTunes. My sister told me half her classmates used to actually listen to lectures on iTunes instead of coming to class. Uh, and I think the reason that struck me so much was I'm a published author who was failing reading in the fourth grade. Uh, you know, that, that has always has been strange, but I think that people in their minds still think this. And, you know, another story related to this, I had a friend when we were undergrads at Berkeley, uh, at Berkeley, when you apply to college, you don't just get in, you have to apply to your major when you get there because it's such a big school. And of course there are all these rules about the GPA that you need to have and all of that. He completely ignored the rules. He went to the business school. He took all the classes and a week before graduation, he walked into the Dean's office and he said, my parents are coming. I've taken all the classes. Are you going to let me graduate or not? And she had no choice. And what always struck me about that story was we thought that these rules were actually real, but they were all made up. And so I wonder what it is that would make my friend do something like that. And something like at that time, I never dared question those rules. I thought, okay, this is the system. These are rules I have to play by. And I always loved that story because it taught me the importance of looking at systems and saying, okay, wait a minute, this is not real. It's malleable. I can break this if I want to. Okay. So I can't help but weigh in here. The um, David Graeber, the late, brilliant David Graeber wrote a book about about bureaucrats. Yep. <laughs> and he, in many ways, celebrated them, that they, they can lead to a saner society. The mistake your friend made was having a single point of failure in his plan. That one bureaucrat who cares more about structure than the person in front of him could have ruined four years of his life. The best way to challenge a system is to not address a plan that has a single point of failure. You need to be able to come at it in multiple ways. So the Alt-MBA has had 5,000 people graduate. That's more than Stanford Business School. And we told a million people about it. So 5,000 out of a million said yes. Well, the odds are, you'll, if you can have the, the privilege to talk to a million people, you'll find 5,000. Not one person could have stopped it. I just needed some people to say yes. Yeah. Well, okay. So that, that's, that's actually really a great point because I think that, you know, you talked a lot about uh, the smallest viable audience and this is marketing. And yet 
over and over, I see people obsessing about, you know, reaching more people, growing my following, getting a bigger audience. And, uh, you know, and I think the, the line I remember, I don't know, and I'm par- paraphrasing it, but you said, you know, resisting the temptation to reach, you know, an audience so large that you eventually reach people who hate your work, which is inevitable. I've realized, like, if you have a, uh, any book, and it's funny, because we'll talk about criticism in a second, but that's inevitable. Yet people feel this endless need for approval and validation from people they don't even know. How Especially do they let go of that? People they don't know. Yeah. Especially because the people they know, they figure are lying to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we had someone drop out of the, the marketing seminar. Uh, almost nobody drops out. And this person dropped out and they said, I've taken 15 of the lessons and you keep talking about the smallest viable audience and doing work that people care about. But I want to just know how to get the word out. I'm like, well, so we did what we said we were going to do very precisely, but you want something else here. Congratulations. You can have a refund because this idea of getting the word out is fairly recent and very misguided. You could not get the word out in a small Swiss village in 1870 because the hundred people in the village were all the people you were ever going to have as customers. Anyway, when you opened your little bakery, that's who it was for. And newspapers and then television made it so that there was this other thing that every once in a while could gain traction, which is everyone drives a Ford. Everybody wants this thing. And you, you, we celebrate those folks, right? But it's a lie. And you know, if we, if we look at any home run modern success of the last 10 or 15 years, with the exception of Google, if it's not about the network effect, they have succeeded with a very tiny audience. So uh, a company like Tesla, which is uh, number one best-selling luxury car in California, to a rounding error, no one in the United States has a Tesla. It's less than 1%, right? Fewer than one out of every 300 people has a Tesla. Yet it becomes the most valuable car company built in the last 50 years because that's enough. Yeah. And it's enough if you're trying to make an impact with your podcast or whatever, whatever it is you seek to do, to have 1,000, 10,000, maybe 50,000 people who care about you, it's enough. So tell me again why you want more people. You want more people so that you can get off the hook. Because if there's a long list of people, you don't have to worry about anybody. But if it's a small Swiss village, you care way more about serving the people you have. Yeah, I love that because I, I remember WBEZ did a, a podcast on the making of Oprah. I don't know if you, you remember this, but one of the things the producer said was that there will never be another Oprah because the media landscape simply doesn't allow for it because, it, you know, it, it's what you say about, you know, 500 to 500,000 channels. I said, you know, if you've got such a fragmented media landscape, inevitably what you're going to have is the demand for attention goes up and the supply of it is, is, you know, also skewed. Like there's economics of supply and demand when it comes to attention. People don't think about that. And he said, you know, like you're better off having the attention and loyalty of, you know, a small group of people who care about everything you do as opposed to, a large group of people who are lukewarm. And yet people, I think for some reason, maybe because of ego, whatever it is, they're like, oh, I want to have a million followers on Instagram. And I had a friend who told me, he said there was a girl on Instagram who had been trying to start a fashion brand. She had a million followers. And somebody said, we'll invest if you can sell 30 t-shirts. And she couldn't move 30 t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not surprised at all about that. And, you know, the the media is fueling this and the media is suffering from it at the same time. The same thing's going on in the Valley when people go to raise money, which is I raised $10 million. My company's better than your company because you only raised $100,000. Well, no, your business is not raising money. Your business is serving your customers and deciding who your partners are going to be. Not the most important thing. The most important thing is would your customers miss you if you were gone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's um, talk about uh, imposter syndrome. This is something that comes up over and over. Like we did a survey of our audience recently to kind of find out what their biggest obstacles were. And often the obstacles in the dream had nothing to do with each other, which was always shocking to me. And somebody said, oh, I want to write a book. The obstacle is COVID. I was like, well, you don't actually need a you know, virus to be dealt with to write a book. You just need to pick up a pen and start. And so that really struck me, but imposter syndrome. So let's talk about those two things. Um, one is this, you know, imagined obstacle that we treat as if it's real, but you say 
when we embrace imposter syndrome, instead of working to make it disappear, we choose the productive way forward. The imposter is proof that we're innovating, leading, and creating. And yet people hate the idea that they're faking it. You know, I started writing about this yesterday. I said, you know what? I have no idea what I'm doing. I've been making it up all as I've gone along. Not credentialed, like I said, almost failed reading in fourth grade, but I had Indian parents who don't believe their kids have learning disabilities, just lousy teachers. Uh, so they didn't buy it. Uh, and it, it, I didn't know the first thing about starting a podcast. I've had friends who's like, can you tell me how to grow? I was like, I don't know. I just started it. I really couldn't tell you anything. So no, that's one of the reasons I won't teach a course on podcasting. I was like, I'll teach a co course on how to interview but I will not teach a course on how to market and grow a podcast because I can't tell you how I did it. I had a lot of advantages that I can't replicate for somebody else, like a 10 year head start. Yeah. So the late Zig Ziglar, who was my friend and teacher, coined this phrase, the obligating question. And what he said is, if you're a salesperson, objections are your friend. That when someone says, I won't do this because of blank, you've just learned a lot. They've told you a truth. If you answer two or three objections and the person still doesn't say yes, something else is going on. They're not telling you the truth. And the way you answer the obligating question is with a different question. When someone says, ah, yeah, this car is really nice, um, but it, I need it to be red, right? If you say to them, if it came in red, are you ready to buy it today? You will now get the real truth. Oh, no, 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 I can't because blank. And two or three to drill down, you're going to get to the real truth. So I, I really want to publish a book, but COVID. Okay, so if COVID was cured, how long after that would your book come out? Well, I mean, you know, and now we're going to get to the truth. And the truth is, I'm afraid that almost every single objection, if we go far enough up the ladder, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I buy an expensive car, karma will come back to haunt me. I'm afraid that my wife will be really upset with me. I'm afraid that I'll feel stupid after I buy this car. I'm afraid that I'll lose my job. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, all the way up to then I'm going to die, right? That the fear, for good evolutionary reasons, lies deep, but we should call it out. I'm afraid to write a book. Okay, why? Because I'm a fraud. Because I'm not sure it's going to work. Because I've never done this before. And if I put myself on the hook, particularly for a small audience, and say, I'm going to write a book for the ages, and it doesn't win a Pulitzer, and it isn't a bestseller, they'll know I'm a fraud. Right now, I'm the only one who knows I'm a fraud. I'm afraid. And so, in the face of that, most people who do what you and I do reassure people and say, don't worry, it's all going to be okay, just persist. And that doesn't make the feeling go away. Uh, My answer is, good thing you feel like a fraud because you are one. <laughs> right? You feel like a fraud because you've never written this book before. I've never been on this podcast talking this way to you before. I'm making it up as I go along. What else could we do? And so if you're going to do anything innovative, creative, important, generous for the first time, you're a fraud, acting as if, hoping for the best. Yeah. And acknowledging it is like a runner acknowledging that he or she is going to get tired. Yep, you're going to get tired. That's what the marathon is for, figuring out where to put the tired. And mm. creative work is about figuring out where to put the fear. So I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about criticism. Um, you know, I, your quotes on criticism have been the ones that have really informed how I deal with it to the point where I don't read emails that are obnoxious anymore. Uh, so you say most criticism, uh, most criticism shared in the internet age is useless or worse harmful. It's useless because it often personalizes the criticism to be about the creator, not the work. And it's useless because most critics are unskilled and generous and ungenerous. And I remember very distinctly, I can only quote one review from any of my books to you by cart. And it's from the book that has the most five-star reviews. It was a self-published book that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And it's from the woman who said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. And I'll never forget that, but I couldn't tell you any other review. Um, and what I wonder, like, why in the world would anybody intentionally seek out criticism? And, and then one other story on top of that, uh, I just in the middle of reading a biography about George Lucas. And when he screened Star Wars for the first time, he had Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma over. And Brian De Palma was ruthless and just tore it to shreds. 
And then he offered to help him rewrite it. So one, you know, because I think like, this is something that I've, I've realized is that creatives are really sensitive when it comes to feedback on their work. I remember even a woman in our community, I was like, you have to learn to take feedback that is sometimes difficult. Cause you know, I, you and I worked with um, Robin Delavo and I remember when Robin came to me, she said, I'm going to be tough. And I remember the first month, it took me a month to stop taking her feedback personally and realize that, wait a minute, she is doing the job that I hired to do. And Robin doesn't sugarcoat feedback and she doesn't compliment you when it's good. She just says good. And this is it. You know, she's very straight and direct and to the point. And yet my book would never have been as good as it became without her. Like I wrote a much better book because I was willing to do that. And yet I noticed so many people are too sensitive to be able to handle that. Right. So you've nested a whole bunch of things together that are really important. The first one is most of the feedback you get is from an amateur who is mostly telling you it wasn't for them. They're not willing to own it with that simplicity. So instead they criticize your surfing skills, but basically what they're saying is this wasn't for me. Okay. Thanks for letting me know. Sorry. I wasted your time. You're a vegetarian. I made short ribs. Sorry. Thanks for letting me know. You don't have to criticize me or the short ribs. You just have to say I'm a vegetarian. We're done here. Then people who do give feedback and criticism, few of them are professional. Robin is one. Robin and I worked side by side for 10 years. And it takes a lot of practice to be a professional at giving feedback. If you meet one of those people, you should treasure every single thing they say about your work. And you should ignore everything they say about you because that would be a mistake for them to say anything about you. But about this work, on this page, will you use this word instead of that word? But what happened if you use this word instead? That's a gift. And you don't have to take the gift, but uh, it will make you better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think most people are so resistant to receiving that sort of criticism, you know, from other people. Uh, so one of the other things you said uh, in particular here that really struck me is that our narrative informs our choices, our commitments, and most uh, of all, our ability to make a difference in culture. It's the frame we use to interpret the world around us. What I wonder is what narratives limit people and how do they change them? Because I see this over and over. Like people, so perfect story is I don't have enough people in my audience. That's one narrative. We, we can use that as a perfect example because we were just talking about that. Um, and that can become an excuse not to do anything. Yeah, but what's behind that narrative? Because if I said, if your audience was twice as big, then what would happen? Uh-huh. Right? That the narrative, I think, is, is much deeper than that. And the narrative comes back to fear. It could be the diva's narrative of how dare they, don't they know who I am? Or it could be the side of that, which is never going to amount to anything. Right? They're both basically the same thing which is, I don't see myself succeeding at this. And that narrative can take 4,000 forms, including not enough people are listening to my podcast. Okay, but what can you do to become of value? Not to manipulate the marketplace so that more people listen to your podcast, but simply to create something that the people who do listen to it will eagerly tell their friends about. Because one of the other things I say in the book is you're probably not as good as you think you are yet. You're probably not nailing it as hard as you think you do. But you can add the word yet. And as soon as you add the word yet, that's super optimistic because it means you can be better tomorrow. Uh-huh. Well, I think I learned that lesson the hard way right at the very beginning of this, because this was 10 years ago when we started. And I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, oh, we're going to interview all these well-known people. They're going to share our interviews with their big audiences and every interview will go viral. Two months later, it's like, this is not true. The people who made our audience grow were our listeners, which is why we have a policy of just because you're famous, it doesn't mean we're going to say yes. I've turned down very, very well-known people that you and I both know, and I'm sure I've made them very upset because everybody says yes to them. And I've said no, um, because I look for stories that I find interesting more than anything else, um, which I think this makes a perfect segue to um, talent and skill. You say many people have talent, but only a few care enough to show up fully and earn their skills. Skill is rarer than talent. Skill is earned. Skill is available to anyone who cares enough. And I can't help but think of Robert Greene's book, Mastery, when you say that, you know, 10 years, 10,000 hours, the time that it takes to develop the skill required to mastery and whether or not people want to do that. Now, why is it that we have this sort of talent myth that perpetuates? 
what a great way to be off the hook. Other people have talent. You don't, right? Yeah. I, I want to, you know, the 10,000 hour rule. Can we just start with the one hour rule? Yeah. Because in one hour, could you get better at something? If you can, you've just taught yourself a huge lesson. And the thing about narratives is the way we change them is by changing what we do, not the other way around. Don't wait for your narrative to change and then you'll do the work. When you do the work, your narrative changes. And so go spend one hour to get significantly better at the smallest thing you can imagine. And then you will realize two hours will get you even better at something else. And down the path you go. And so I haven't listened to your 10-year-old podcast. I don't know when the last time you did, but I'm guessing you're way better at it now than you did that. <laughs> I like to think so. And you're really good at it now because every time you listened, you learned, and you got better at it for the next time. Yeah. And what an optimistic way to view the world. On the other hand, talent is insulting. If you say to a skilled person, you're really talented at interviewing, well, the answer is, no, I'm not. I wasn't born able to interview anybody. I worked for this. And so can you. Yeah. So in the interest of time, I had one question that came from a listener. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to ask it because I know you got a hard stop. Okay. So um, he said he wanted to know, this was from Dave Delaney. He said, ask him to share his best canoe story from Algonquin Park, which I I have no idea what that means, but. Everything uh, that I do when I'm doing my best work reminds me of where I learned to teach up north of Toronto in Algonquin Park, Canada. Um, Canoes are 16 foot long wooden boats that um, were made by the Chestnut Canoe Company, made out of cedar, covered in canvas. And to take an 11-year-old kid and put them in a boat that big by themselves and teach them how to have complete control over everything that boat does changes a kid's life. It's not about canoeing. It is about (laughs) breathing and posture and possibility and enthusiasm and enrollment because you can't force someone, you can't educate someone to do this scary thing. They can enroll and choose to learn this thing. And I guess the lesson that occurred to me just recently is this. When you get in the boat and you pull the paddle backwards, you see those little whirlpools in the water. And I I was there as recently as uh, the summer before last, 42nd summer. Um, Where's the water go? When you pull the paddle, where's the water go? And they're like, well, it goes all the way to the shore. Yeah, no, that's impossible. The water would weigh more than a million pounds that you just pushed. In fact, when you paddle a canoe, the water doesn't move. The water is staying still and you are prying against the water and the canoe is moving. And understanding that you are the bridge between this still thing that you don't have enough leverage to change and this other thing that you're capable of moving forward is a game changer because we are surrounded by this culture and none of us with all the levers we have can change the whole culture. We can't get the culture to be the generous, resilient, fair thing we'd like it to be in one day, but we can lean against it and move our canoe and we can move it in the direction we want to move it. If we're enrolled, if we believe, if we try. And so it took me 42 summers to figure that out, but that's my riff. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all our, our interviews, which I, I think will be a perfect way to also bring us full circle with the question of authenticity. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Because your take on authenticity was one of the most counterintuitive that I'd ever seen. And I loved it. Some people are unmistakable without realizing that they set out to do so. They're super letterman lucky. And professionals are unmistakable on purpose. And they have dealt with their fear, danced with the fact that it's probably not going to work and done it anyway, because it's the most generous way they can make a difference in the world. I don't know how to get lucky. I just know how to be a professional. And I think your insight, that single word, unmistakable, um, brilliant, because it's a choice. And if people make the choice, they can make things better. Hmm. 
Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your wisdom and your insights with us, uh, as always. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I'm sure unless they've been on the moon for the last 10 days, like they probably all know where the book is because it's showing up everywhere. But just in case, uh, where can people find out about your book, your work, everything else that you're up to? Uh, free sample at seths.blog slash the practice. Uh, the, the B Corp that's now independent of me is called Akimbo. You can find it at akimbo.com. And you can find 7,500 of my blog posts by typing Seth into DuckDuckGo or your favorite search engine. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.